In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Sorry, I'm getting sick, so I'm praying that I don't get a coughing fit uh, in the middle of the sermon. We are uh, starting a brand new series. I'm excited about this. We're going to be in the book of Titus. Has anyone done a series in the book of Titus before? I've never done one in the book of Titus, so coming on 20 years of being a pastor, I haven't done one on the book of Titus. And so a little background on that, and then I'll talk about why this, this means something for our everyday life. So the book of Titus is one of what we call pastoral epistles. So you can imagine these are epistles written. These are letters. We don't use that word. I will write you an epistle. We say letter. So these are pastoral letters that Paul wrote to some pastors. So there's two pastors that are mentioned in the New Testament. One is Timothy, who is, seems to be very young. When you read the book of Timothy and the uh, first and second Timothy, it talks about how young he is. And it talks about my, like my young uh, believer in the faith and things like that. My son, Timothy, uses kind of terms like that. So he seems to be a very young pastor who is functioning, and I think he was functioning in Ephesus. I should have double-checked that. Titus, on the other hand, seems a little bit older, and his situation's a little bit different. So Titus is a Greek, which is unusual. So Paul is, um, Paul is Jewish, and Titus was a Greek, and we, his name comes up because he was an example. He was a living example because Paul was in this argument at one point with Peter, and they went to Jerusalem for this big showdown, if you know this. This is the Jerusalem council is happening. They have this big showdown, and Paul in front of everyone says, listen, um, well, I should explain the argument. The one side was saying that you had to follow all the Jewish laws and believe in Jesus to be a Christian. And the, Paul was saying that is not absolutely not true. Jesus has completely fulfilled all the laws, and it's only through faith in Christ that matters. And his example was that Titus had come, had heard the message, and he did not follow all the laws. Um, <clears throat> he, he wasn't circumcised. So that was his example. I don't know if they had PowerPoint back then or what or how it, this went down, but it's very strange, but he's explaining like he was not compelled to do this so that he was an example. And then later, Titus actually, he's known for two things. He's basically kind of an enforcer in a sense, I mean, in a positive way. Uh, Paul trusted him to go to difficult situations maybe because of experience or maybe the way that he handled things or how he could structure things. He would go to difficult circumstances, and then he was able to set up structure and focus people on the gospel. And specifically, that happens in two places. So can you think of any churches that are kind of a mess in the New Testament? You ever read the book of Corinthians? The, yeah, the book of Corinthians is like the Jerry Springer show. If you read that, it's like some guy's dating his stepmom, and I mean, it's really a mess. So there's, this is a mess, but Paul trusted Titus to be the one who goes and speaks to the people there, which is, I think shows a lot of trust in it. The other one, he went to the island of Crete. And Crete, normally you think, wow, that's a Mediterranean island because it's a Mediterranean island. It really is. And that's this, you think this is wonderful and beautiful, but the reputation for the people in Crete was not good at all. They were known as gluttons and drunkards. This is their own people writing this, gluttons, drunkards, and um, liars all the time. So Paul has to go into this situation and kind of fix, uh, not Paul, Titus, he trusts to go to this situation and fix it. You run into that now if you've been around the Christian church for a long time. Once in a while we have pastors even, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, we have 1,200 pastors and some of them are known to go into very difficult situations and fix it up. And I would guess if you work in the corporate world and you work in any kind of company that has like franchises or anything like that, there's a reasonable chance if you're good at your job, they're going to start shifting you around like Enterprise, I knew someone who worked for Enterprise, they would shift him to branches that were not functioning well. Maybe you're going to an office and they kind of give you the wink, you got to fix this up. That same thing happened to me. We had a technology committee for the district and they said, hey, we need a favor. My favor was to fix the technology committee. I shouldn't say that out loud, but I don't think any of them listened to my sermon. So, anymore. 
So, the, um, so we're in the book of Titus. We're going to be talking about kind of an illustration that was unfamiliar to me when I moved here. When I moved here, we often talked about the snowpack. Did you ever notice that when you watch the news? I totally did not understand this. So when you move from, I'm from Wisconsin originally, and I did not understand the, the talk of snowpack. The reason I thought we were talking, <coughs> I'm sorry, uh, we were talking about the snowpack was, why did this matter? Skiing, of course, right? So I grew up in Wisconsin skiing. Here is my home mountain, Nordic Mountain. Has anyone ever been to Nordic Mountain? It's pretty nice. Look at all those lightning. I mean, that's how fast you're going down that. Um, Harry Carey, which is like just certain death if you go down this mountain. You can imagine. So it looks probably a little bit bigger than it really is. Here's a, here's a live photo of it. <laughs> it's 265 vertical feet. I think I could throw a baseball 265 feet, so, so it's 265 vertical feet, not a very big thing, but that is not the reason why we have a snowpack. So snowpack, when they talk about it, this is from an avalanche, um, just last year actually in March, that was going across the road by, uh, is anyone ever skied in Silverton? I have not gone, but whenever I see the reports, they get so much snow, and every year it's a dream to go and take one of the cats up and go ski there. Why do I bring this? I really thought it was because they want to let us know how the ski season is. And I thought that's very nice because I want to know if there's good conditions and I want to know. But that has nothing, I think, to do with anything. The reason why they talk about snowpack is because so much water comes down from the snowpack for our freshwater resources. So this is a new thing for me when I grew up in Wisconsin. Um, if you grew up in Minnesota, this is the land of, what's Minnesota known as? Yeah, lousy football teams and... 10,000 lakes. That's what it's known for. 10,000 lakes. So we had this, they had this battle with Wisconsin. And the way that they, they actually have more than 10,000 lakes. They have 11,832, I think it is, which is above 10 acres. Okay, so keep that in mind, 11,000 lakes. Wisconsin said, oh, that's great, but we have 15,000. And that's what they claim, but they, it's really a little sketch on how we counted it. And so these are not 10-acre lakes. We only have like 6,000 10-acre lakes. So if you can't win, this is a rule for the kids, um, you just change the rules. <laughs> Astros. <laughs> Patriots. Um, so, the, why do we do this? We change this because there, water was everywhere. Like when we were kids, we just went to the lake. I mean, people said, I went to a lake. And if you said you had a house on a lake, this is not that exclusive. It is, I mean, to have something like that. But there's 10,000 lakes. I mean, there's 11,000 lakes. There's 15,000 lakes. This is not that difficult. I just Googled, how many lakes does Colorado have? This is great. Like, I tried to find above 10,000, above 10 acres. 47. This is 47, right? So what do we do when all this water comes down from snowpack? We have, like, uh, this huge snowpack, and 75% of our fresh water around here in Colorado comes from the snowpack, when it comes down, we have to make fake lakes, right? So we have reservoirs. We have the Cherry Creek Reservoir, and we have the, I can't think of the other one. What's the? Someone is saying, Ch Chatfield, there we go, Chatfield, right? So we have fake lakes, and I have fake ski hills back where I'm from. This is how it works. So, so all this water, we try to collect it because it's such a huge thing. And I thought this was a, a beautiful illustration, and we're going to spend a little bit of time in the book of Titus to understanding that um, in this book, he's going to pack and pack and pack and fill us up with God's grace because it's God's grace that eventually trickles down into our life. 
And I think what we'll, you'll often find is we start to look as Christians, we always want to look at the end, kind of drink from the rivers of our Christian life and say, like, what does Christianity mean to me? And we want to make sure that we have pretty good kids and we want to make sure that our marriage is going all right and we want to make sure that we feel peace and all these other... Those are all end products. Those are all the rivers that are going down. But instead, it's really easy to forget what's filling this up. And what fills that up is the fact that we truly have a God who loves us, who fills us with grace, who brings us forgiveness. And over time, you fill that up. It's a well that never ends. It just keeps pouring down into each of us. So our theme for this series is Grace Flows Down, and we're going to just jump into it. Kind of an introduction this week. Um, So Titus chapter 1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So just for a little bit of background, Paul is an apostle, but not in the normal way. So Paul's not an apostle in the normal way. All the other apostles, that just means sent out. And when were they sent out? We just covered this last week. Remember our timeline? We had Jesus' resurrection, and he appears to 500 people. And then he ascends into heaven, and he, and he sends them out. Go and make disciples of all nations. He's literally talking to them, and those are the apostles. He sends them out. Paul is different. Remember, he was um, persecuting Jesus, and he goes on his way to Damascus, and Jesus appears to him and says, why are you persecuting me? He gives him a brand new name and becomes truly one of the greatest missionaries the church has ever known. So this is Paul. He's giving a background because he would read this letter aloud. It was written for Titus in particular, but it was intended that he would read this so the people could hear. So Paul is servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And just so we don't get hung up on elect, uh, many people struggle with that, and I think the simplest thing is to understand it this way. When God talks about our elect or predestination, is that a term you're familiar with? Yeah, so when, when God uses that, it's always for comfort. We never have this idea that this is a threat, that God said, are you really part of the elect? Are you really part of the chosen? God is trying to tell you as believers that before the creation of the world, God said, I saw you as part of my family. And I think that's an assurance, right? Uh, Before I even saw you, you could say that if you adopted a child, before I even saw you, I thought of you as part of my family. That's what God is really saying. Before you were even born, you were part of my family. You were on my kickball team before I could even pick. And if I had one refrigerator, your name would be on it. That's what God is telling us. So why is, what is Paul's job? to um, their knowledge, what he's trying to do is to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And I got to spend a little bit of time here just so we um, don't get confused. He's trying to further their knowledge that leads to godliness. Now there's, what would be the flip of that? Just flip that around. What would be the, the opposite of that? Maybe the same result on paper, right? So if he said, here's my job is to further your godliness. That's way, way different, right, than saying my job is to further your knowledge of the truth that eventually leads to godliness. And let me explain it a little bit. It's something I've probably talked about. You ever hear the term moralizing? Moralizing versus like gospel-driven. And this is a huge point, and I want to make a point that Paul is not a moralizer. Moralizer says the end result that you want is behavior. And that's, and we do, right? So it leads to godliness. So Paul would say, my desire is that you're so filled up with Christ that you have such an understanding of what God has done for you and thankfulness that leads to a godly living. If you flip that around, it gets really confusing. So um, once in a while, this happens in churches. This is one of the main complaints, and I've, I've, you'll, you'll recognize my, my rant here in a second because of Veggie Tales. 
Veggie tails, right? Yeah, everyone knows Veggie tails. But the, the the rub on Veggie tails is it's just trying to kid, get the kids to do better things, without connecting it to why you would do better things. It's saying just like don't lie, don't steal. And so what would it look like if you had, you went home, and your job was uh, your parents were going to show up, right? So you've got kids, and your parents are going to come, and you just want your kids to do the right things. What would that look like? Like, what kind of things would you do to try and make sure your kids are doing the right things? It might rhyme with threat, shame, guilt, right? And you can see that is manipulation that can happen, right? So if you're just trying to get the end result, like skip the middle, like we're here, I want the end result. There's a whole lot of stuff you can do to get people to look and do the right thing. And it's, in fact, not that hard. I mean, if you work at a place, you've seen bosses that work through different ways that, that use shame and they use guilt and they use um, leaning on you. And, and so you end up with the right result, but what have they forgotten in the process? Your heart, right? Your heart's not in it. And as a parent, my, as a parent and as a Christian, we're trying to fill up our kid's heart and trusting that the end result's gonna look okay, right? And so that's the same way as believers. God is looking to fill our heart up, not just to try and get the end result in it. And I give you one example, um, a story I tell at least once a year. So there's this kid, and I think it's Randy's favorite because he laughs every time. So we'll see if this works. So uh, there's this guy at the, di- this boy at a dinner table. And remember, he's, he's sitting with his family and his dad, he's standing up on his chair and his dad's like, sit down, eat your dinner. And he goes, sits down. And then he stands back up and he's like, sit down and eat your dinner sit down and eat your dinner, or, and he makes all these threats, so the kid sits down, and then he leans over to his brother, and do you know his phrase? I might be sitting down, but inside, I'm standing up, <laughs> right? So he's forgotten his heart, and, and if you look through the whole Testament, what is the thing that makes Jesus so angry? It's not that the Pharisees were doing the wrong thing. I mean, from all perception, when you look at the Pharisees and the people at that time, they were doing all the right stuff, right? If you saw some guy who was praying, and like keeping his kids and they're reciting God's passages and they're giving a tenth of all they own, not just their income. Like they're doing all the right things on the outside and it's a very big show and everyone sees this. They're like, wow, that is a believer right there. God is saying you're whitewashed tombs, which means the whole outside's perfect. It looks great, but inside is death. And so the whole emphasis that we're going to talk about today is just that. His job is so they have an understanding of the truth through faith that their heart is so filled up that it overflows into godly living. Okay? In the hope of eternal life. So we, I'll go back one. So the knowledge of the truth that leads to, godly, uh, to godliness. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, which now it is appointed season. He, this is, I'll read it slower because this is a little bit hard. So in the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. He's talking about the hope of eternal life was promised before the beginning of time. And which now at his appointed season, he is brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. So what is that saying? All of that is leading back up to the hope of eternal life. So his main point is this knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life. And then he says, God is the one who brings all of this, and he brought it at the right time, and that right time is now through this preaching that happens through me. So let's just talk about hope for a little bit. And I think this is more of where we're, we're getting it. Um, hope is the reason why 
all of this functions, and hope is the reason why you function as a human being. And I think there's a key, key thing. We all work in hope. Every single person you know does stuff because of hope. Everybody you work with does stuff because of hope. Every parent you know parents because of hope. Every single one. And what are they hoping for? If I do all these things, I mean, just pick, they don't even have to be a believer, and I think they function in hope. Like, you show up for work hoping you get paid, right? Like, this is why you show up for work. It doesn't mean it matter if you're a believer or an unbeliever. Like, you show up for work, and you're like, I do my job, and I'm hoping I get paid. I'm hoping I get recognized. I'm hoping I get a promotion. There's one example. You raise kids. What is your hope? That you hope that your kids are decent kids, that you hope that your kids eventually move out of the house, right? These are, these are all hopes. And so you can do all this action, and I think the key, what would be the difference between the people who are those who know who Christ is and those who don't? They all function in hope. One functions for the hope in this world. One hopes that, that if they do the right things, they'll be recognized by their boss. One hopes that they'll eventually get enough money in the bank. One hopes that, that people will recognize what great parents they are. One hopes that they maybe are become a great athlete or that they hope that they do really well in school and they hope that they get excel in the world and they hope that the world recognizes them. They say it a little bit differently in the book of Corinthians and he basically says this, this is a paraphrase, but he says if our hope is just for this world, you know how that finishes? First Corinthians 15? If we don't even have a hope for the resurrection, if we don't have a hope for eternal life, it says we're be pitied more than all people. Like if, if you're really striving and if all the things you do are striving just for this world and recognition this world, he says you are to be pitied more than all people. And so what is his job? The believer hopes in something different. The believer functions and makes choices and, and, and all the decisions you make and the moves you do and every single thing that you do at work and at home and when you wake up in the morning and when no one's around has nothing to do with what the world says. These are things that recognize I do this because I have a hope in eternal life. So here's what he's saying. The believer functions because we hope in something that's farther down the road. And God has entrusted this great thing with me as my Savior. And he connects this with, I think, the Old Testament passage as we talk about it. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. What is he saying? He says, my word goes out, and God has a purpose for that, and he wants that to change not just your actions, but change your heart. You can, um, in application, and, and we could talk this a long time, if you sit down with someone who's maybe 12, and they said, here's my dream. You know, I want to play in the NBA. You sit down with someone who's 12, and they say, I want to be an astronaut. And you sit down with someone in a relationship, they just want to, I want to find the right person, and I want to raise kids or something like that, or I want to um, go to this certain school, they have a dream, like you maybe have kids getting ready, and they, I want to get into Stanford, or I want to get into MIT, or I want to go into here, and I want to make this elite team. And you can sit down as a parent, right, seeing the whole picture of things and saying you can't put all your hope in this world, right? Is that that hard? Like, this does not define you as an individual. You can, you can try this, but eventually this stuff is going to fail and you're going to be disappointed. Like, if all your hope is how you look and how you perform and all these other things, would we agree collectively that it's going to be a failure? 
You know what the scariest thing, though, is? What if you're not a failure? Like, what happens if you're really good? And you put your hope in something, and you really do have awesome kids. And what happens if you really are successful at work? And what happens if you really do have money in the bank? And what happens if, like, the world looks and they all look up to you and say, you know what, that person has it figured out. To me, that's the scariest thing, even scarier than earthly failure. Because we're going to look at that action and we're going to remember these actions. And these even could be Christian actions. It could be like my family goes to church or my kids go to church even though they moved out of the house. And it could be that my kids pray at night. And it could be that our family has a devotion at night. And it could be, or in the morning. And it could be that my kids are not sleeping with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. And it could be, like all these things could be Christian attributes. And we could be very excited about them. But what have we done? We're drinking again from the well of, or the rivers that come from a Christian living rather than Christ. And I think the scariest thing that happens is not only just finding our hope in the, what the world can produce, but maybe even finding our hope in the results that have come. This whole book, and you'll find that specifically in chapter 2, the whole book is going to say, let's go back to who Jesus is. Let's go back to recognizing who we are, that we are sinful human beings who are on this earth and every single thing that we do, every single blessing that we have is straight from God's grace. Let's go back to remembering that we have a God who went to the cross, not just for the other people, but we have a God who went to the cross for me. Because he had to. And we have a God who says, I bring forgiveness to you. I put a different name on you. And so as you look back on your life and as you hold on to these hopes, we're not worried about the end results. What we want to worry about is, do we know who Jesus is? Do I wake up in the morning and recognize where I stand with him? And do I recognize that forgiveness only comes from him? Because once you're filled up like that, we'll let the world and the other things determine. One final thing as we jump ahead. He says, To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, many believe that he was um, an unbeliever and became a believer through Paul. And I only bring this up because it illustrates very clearly what the gospel is for. It all comes from God, but who is the gospel for? Here we have an instance of Paul, a Jewish man, who talks to a Gentile man who becomes a believer. And as a church, we have to ask, who is the gospel for? Ultimately, we want to fill you up with God's word. Right? That's what we want to do. But there is a process that comes with it. I was reading um, years and years ago, Jim Collins. There's two illustrations that people get from Jim Collins, good to great. What's the first one? Get the right people on the bus. And then the other one is... It's round, it's giant, the flywheel. Is this anyone picturing this? Okay, so the flywheel is this, this idea that if you have a flywheel, you, you push it and it moves a little bit. And the, the business is, that's, this is what he claims, they have this giant flywheel and they're pushing, 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 pushing. They're just doing incremental things again and again and again and again, but eventually this flywheel gets momentum and it starts to go. And the momentum when we talk about as a church, when we're talking about what is our goal and what are we trying to do, I stole this from a guy named James Emery White. He writes a blog every week, and he just happened to, not this. Now, we could phrase it a little bit differently. If you're not a believer and you're mad that we're called the lost, I mean, um, but this is the picture, right? So our job as a church is to reach out, to be, reach out to those who don't know who Jesus is. Assimilate, not my favorite word, I would say include, but in, include them into a body of believers, right? This is what we're doing. Incrementally, we're finding those who don't know Jesus, including them into a body of believers, helping them see who Jesus is 
by how do we do that. We don't just try and get results. We don't try and have a checklist and say, are you doing this every day? Instead, we say we want you to know who Jesus is so filled in your heart because when that happens, it said, what do I do with this faith that I have? And you go outside these doors and you find new people. So what happens, like you just tick it a little bit, but our ultimate goal when we talk about as a church, as a Christian church, for every Christian church, is to find those who don't know who Jesus is, give them a home, and help them take their next steps into understanding more and more about the knowledge of who Jesus is, the thoroughness of what Christ has done for them, the, the, the thoroughness of grace and what God has done, and then just let them, let them go. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we look at the book of Titus, lots of things are going to be happening in Crete, a lot of frustrations, but we also know that in our life, we've got all kinds of things that are happening, some things that go up, some things that go down, some things that are frustrating, and it's really easy to say um, the world needs help, but the reality is we need help, and it's, uh, we can look at all our life, even if things are aligned and things are going great, and we don't have debt, and we don't have all these other things, but we ultimately look at the core of who we are and that says we're a sinful person who needed your grace. And only through your grace can you fill us up. As we go and function with our families, as we go to function at work, as we go to function as your believers, help us always keep that at our core and help us to let that show itself, just flow out of us and the way that we love other people, the way that we take the bold steps of sharing our faith with other people because more and more people in this world, there's so many people who don't know that piece of who they are. We ask that we can do this in your name.